Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 229 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and it, uh, it's on a sad note that we come uh, to you today for episode 229. Rob Dinnerman is on the podcast, and he's going to uh, break down and take us through the lives of two American squash legends uh, who recently uh, passed away, uh, Pete Bostwick, who passed away on July uh, 7th, and Sam Howe, he passed away on September. Uh, 15th. Both of these gentlemen, absolute legends on the American hardball squash scene. Pete Bostwick, um, uh, an incredible all-around athlete, uh, excelled in several uh, sports, including squash, won a number of national championships in, on the squash scene, but also excelled in other sports, uh, rackets, uh, tennis, golf, ice hockey. And Rob's going to uh, pay tribute to Pete, uh, and he gives a tremendous tribute to, to him uh, today and also uh, Sam Howe uh, absolute legend on the American squash scene in fact uh, he uh, is uh, he won the what they call the um, the grand slam of hardball squash and Rob's going to break down uh, what an illustrious uh, squash career uh, he had uh, as well so Sam Howe and Pete Bostwick tributes today from Rob Dinnerman on episode 229 but uh, before we uh, get into to the podcast today. Um, uh, I just want to uh, say a word about our sponsor, Open Squash, the New York based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. One of the ways uh, Open Squash fulfills this mission is through their Junior Scholarship Fund, which helps support the 25% of juniors with, uh, t- with financial aid. To this end, Open Squash is holding its annual fundraiser on Friday, October 7th. That's the day before my birthday. Maybe uh, somehow I'll try to uh, to get there, uh, which will uh, feature three special guests, the dedicated Open Squashers, Al- Ali Farag, Gina Kennedy, and Victor Quang. Okay. Uh, it's going to be an amazing night with an exhibition match, play the pro, and food and drinks. Details are on the OpenSquash.org website. If you're close to New York City, it'd be great to attend. And if you aren't, please consider donating. So, uh, if we're going to grow the game of squash and bring everyone in, we need to support the nonprofit organizations that are making it happen. And Open Squash is an, an incredible uh, sponsor that I have, and I'm really proud to have them on board. I'm definitely uh, probably not going to be able to attend, but I'll certainly uh, be donating uh, to this cause, and I hope you do too. Many thanks to Open Squash, our sponsor. And today on episode 229, Rob Dinnerman gives tribute to. Pete Bostwick and Sam Howe. Uh, well, Rob, it's great to have you back on the podcast again. And it's always, uh, you know, we usually speak about two, three times a year. And uh, it's always a pleasure for me. Unfortunately, this time around, uh, we're here to speak about the loss of two U.S. squash legends, uh, Pete Bostwick and uh, Sam Howe, Pete, Pete Bostwick Jr. And uh, first of all, I just want to send my condolences out to their families. And also uh, to you, Rob, because I know you were good friends with them both. Um, And I'd love to speak. uh, I'd love you to give us a bit of a tribute on both of them, if you don't mind today. I'm I'm happy to. I was good friends with uh, both of them and uh, and greatly admired both of them. Uh, And both really excelled uh, 
at a number of different racket sports. Pete Boswick uh, won three national age group championships in squash. He was he played. He's one of the very few people who played in the U.S. Open in both golf and tennis. Uh, he was that good at both of those both of those sports. He won national and world singles and doubles championships in court tennis. He was an accomplished player of the sport of rackets, uh, and he was and his favorite sport. Uh, which was the only fully team sport. He was a he was a very good hockey player uh, at St. Paul's and then at Middlebury College and later on the St. Nick's uh, amateur hockey team that uh, is well known uh, well known throughout the hockey world. So uh, these are he was a very he was probably he may have been the most versatile athlete uh, of anybody I've ever known. I mean there were a number of racket sports in there plus golf plus hockey. Yeah, an incredible all-around athlete. Uh, obviously, squash was among the, uh, several sports. It wasn't his best sport, uh, but uh, definitely he excelled at it. And uh, it's a great, uh, a great loss for the U.S. squash community. But he lived a, a fairly, you know, fruitful life. So let, let's talk a bit about his uh, his squash, if you don't mind, before we look Absolutely. at the other sports. Uh, Absolutely, you know, squash you know, was one of the last sports. Squash was one of the last sports that Pete uh, picked up in a serious way. He really didn't start playing competitively until he was in his early 30s. But even with that late start, he uh, won a number of uh, good amateur tournaments, uh, had a number of wins over over highly ranked players. He's best known in squash for the three national age group championships he won. The national 40 and over in 1975, the 45 and over in 1980, and the uh, 19, and the 70 and over in 2005. Uh, and in 1975, when the Nationals that year was in New York City, uh, he played Henry Salon, in a, who had been many times a national champion, uh, in a riveting semifinal that was probably the most memorable match of that entire weekend, including the Open tournament. Uh, won that match 15-12 on the 5th. And played Charlie Ufford, another who was the defending age group 40 and over champion at the time. Ufford and Mel Sokolow had had a brutal semifinal, both big guys, uh, long match. And they were both exhausted at the end. And Ufford, who won the match, was so spent from that semi that uh, Bostock won that final the next day very, very handily. Um, five years later, in 1980, when the Nationals was held at Jadwin Gymnasium, uh, Pete again had to play uh, a reigning champion, Les Harding, in the semis. Had a very tough win over Les. That those two had gone back and forth over the years, but Pete won that time. And again in the other semi, Mel Sokolow and Ufford wore each other out. This time Mel won, but he was too exhausted to contest the final against Boswick the next day. So both of those finals were very one-sided after very competitive semifinals. But the final in nineteen in two thousand five at the American Cricket Club against Dick Mason, the defending champion, was a very close five game match, and the key point came at ten all in the fifth. Uh, uh, Pete hit a defensive shot. Uh, Mason had every option in the world to hit. Pete just made a gamble that he was going that Mason was going to hit a straight drop shot and just raced to the front right corner. Had Mason hit any other shot, it would have been a winner by 10 feet. But Pete guessed right, as he did so often in his career. 
and Mason did hit the, the, the straight drop shot. Pete got to it because of the early start he had, hit a winner past Mason, and that was the psychological turning point of the match. Mason never recovered from that, and Bostrick ran out the last four points to win that match, 15-10 of the fifth game. So that was um, those three national age group championships, Both of, all three of which were very distinctive in different ways, uh, were sort of the highlights of Pete's squash career. Uh, that summer, in fact, of 2005, he had a revision, meaning a second hip replacement. He's actually the first player to win a national age group championship with two artificial hips because both had been replaced in the years prior. Uh, anyway, he had a revision. He never really got his mobility back from that. And although he played, he continued to play other sports, especially tennis, um, he really never never competed in a serious way in squash again after that. Yes, well, with two, uh, two hip replacements, that would, that would explain why. Now, you describe uh, the 2005 uh, 70-plus um, event as maybe his defining moment for squash. I was just, uh, just wondering. Well, this, uh, was a, this was a 70 and over, and, you know, people's squash careers are not really defined by what they do in, in an age group category that far along. Uh, I think it was more hmm. that Pete played squash at a national level while also playing so many other sports at a national level. And, and really the versatility involved in that mm. uh, is, is really remarkable. Not just several racket sports, you know, golf as well and hockey. In fact, there were a number of weekends uh, uh, when Pete was actively playing hockey in which he would have, he would enter a squash tournament and, um, and, the, and also play in a hockey game on Sunday afternoons Usually he was out of the squash tournament by the time Sunday afternoon rolled around. But that's uh, that's a pretty ambitious – that's setting a pretty ambitious uh, schedule for a, for a given weekend. And Absolutely it is, yeah. Absolutely. I took some notes, uh, and I did – I mean, I think you covered quite a bit there in terms of the squash career, but I just wanted to, you know, go back just in case we missed anything. So you mentioned, uh, you know, his uh, – I believe you spoke to his 40 plus nationals, uh, U.S. nationals victory, and you described it in uh, in your tribute to him on the Daily Squash Report as the uh, I think you described it as the stuff of legend or maybe I'm uh, maybe those are my words. But uh, it certainly uh, sounds like it was. Um, could you just go through that uh, for us again, Rob? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, what was this uh, again, uh, Jerry? Which but let's speak. The U.S. Bit. Nationals uh, before his 40-plus victory. Yes, in '75. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe you, you might have uh, just described. You might have just uh, given us a, a thumbnail on that one, but um, it was you described it. I think in the tribute as uh, the stuff of, of legend, or maybe well, along something along those lines. Uh, absolutely. Um, to begin with, the focus that weekend going into the tournament was whether Victor Niederhofer, who was a four-time defending champion in the open division, could win that event, uh, was a, I'm sorry, three-time defending champion and a four-time champion overall, could win that tournament again for a fourth straight year. Uh, and, uh, and Victor actually played Peter Briggs, who was an upcoming star in, in the final. And Coming into the weekend, that was the, the event that everyone was focused on, as is always true of the Nationals. Usually the main focus is on the is on the top open division. Uh, but that match that Pete Boswick had with Henry Salon in particular uh, 
uh, was, uh, which was played on one of the main exhibition courts, which have a huge gallery at the host club, which is the University Club of New York, had, it was so riveting and so exciting and, and so well played and so close all the way through that that really turned out to be the match of the weekend. Uh, in everybody's memory of that, when people are asked about the 1975 Nationals, the match that they that they most conjure up and most re- and remember it best by was that semifinal between Pete and Henry Salon. And for an age group match, and an age group match that isn't even the final, to be the match that people remember more than any other is a very, very unusual phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. It sounded uh, sounds like such a, an incredible, uh, riveting uh, match, as you say. Now, in terms of um, you know, if, if you know anyone were to actually play Pete in squash, and you were at any level, you'd probably find him to be extremely uh, challenging, extremely difficult, maybe very difficult to read. In fact, you you describe his uh, squash game uh, or squash shot game, I guess, as a creative cross pollination. That's true, and that was and that was true. What what do you mean by that? Well, that was not only true of of when he played squash, but that was true of other bracket sports as well. Mm. Uh, To begin with, he was not really an exceptional athlete per se. He wasn't very big. He wasn't altogether very strong. He wasn't the fastest of anybody. He was very smart. He had very, very good ball control. And that was true of all the sports he played, including golf. And, and for that matter, the way he controlled the hockey puck, his, his racket control of the ball in all of the sports, including squash, was excellent. He got the right depth. He placed the ball well. He thought about it. He was very creative in thinking about uh, what shot he was going to hit. But one of the parts of his game that was kind of unique and that uh, and that stemmed from the, his versatility and the, the fact that he played the other racket sports so so well also is that every once in a while in a squash match, and he sometimes would do this, especially at a crucial point, he would play a shot that was not associated with squash, but that was associated with one of the other sports that he played. And his opponent, who was usually a squash player only, was sort of puzzled and nonplussed and caught off balance by this unusual angle that the ball was suddenly coming at him at. And on a shot that was not normally associated with squash, but that he brought from other sports into the squash match. And that, can, that, that sort of moment of indecision that he was able to induce often caused him to win the point and, and sometimes thereby gain the momentum to, to turn the match in his favor. That sounds that interesting. Sort of, uh, that sounds really interesting. I mean, for anyone who is coming from another racket sport and then they try squash and they're pretty good at that other racket sport, usually that backfires. But with his squash knowledge, I'm assuming that's how he sort of how that's how those shots manifested themselves. Right. He was he had a squash. He had a squash brain as well. So he knew how to play those shots in such a way that it would cause maybe some trouble. That's absolutely that's absolutely what happened. Uh, there was um, this was just sort of a new look and a different look. And, and, and it was usually a shot that if the opponent knew it was coming up beforehand, he'd have been able to handle because it maybe would have been an open ball that suddenly angled in on him. And in squash, mm-hmm. of course, you're supposed to try to keep the ball away from people's reach, from your opponent's reach. 
Uh, but it definitely, it definitely, sometimes he would do on a, he would, he would serve in a way that was sort of a crisscross serve or a serve that, um, that is not the normal squash serve of a lob serve or, or, a, or a, uh, just sidearming it into play. And again, especially under the pressure of, of, of the crucial, of the fact that the match might've been at a crucial stage, it definitely rattled that new look and that unusual mm. Uh, angle definitely got opponents rattled and, and in a position where they were not they did not handle it well and that might you know get swing the point and perhaps the match from there in peach direction i saw that happen several times well i, I wish i could have seen that as well it sounds it sounds quite especially coming from someone who kind of uh, knew what they were doing in terms of playing those shots it was a design it was, it was part of the strategy i guess right well, he had these other, you know, he had shots from these other games to draw upon. And mm. um, and my guess is, although I'm not for sure, that he brought his squash knowledge into some of the other racket sports he played yeah. and, and similarly did, you know, use the same tactic to uh, to win some important matches in those other sports as well. Yeah, I've been able to do that with, uh, I've been playing a little bit of paddle and, and it does work. <laughs> the squash shots and paddle uh, certainly were, but uh, yes, uh, an amazing uh, squash uh, uh, career, especially for only having started the game at 31. I wish I would have gotten to, to see him play, but uh, your tribute to him uh, in terms of his squash is, is incredible, uh, Robin. Really, thank you for that. Are we? Is there anything else there in terms of squash? I want to move on to to his other sports, but just in terms of squash. Uh, can you just uh, maybe maybe sum it all up again for us? Well, that's most of it, except I would, I would add as well, he had four children. Uh, one son, who was the oldest of the four, Pete, Pete Jr., really Pete III, who, uh, who sort of followed in footsteps in terms of playing, uh, going to St. Paul's, going to Middlebury, playing these various sports. Uh, they, in fact, um, overlapped as teammates briefly, I think, on the St. Nick's hockey team. But mm -hmm. uh, Pete Jr. became a good squash player in his own right and, and a especially a very good doubles player. Uh, but the, 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 of the four, the one with the most racket skills was his oldest daughter, uh, Catherine Bostwick, known to everybody as Khaki, mm -hmm. who had tremendous eye-hand coordination, didn't start playing school. She was a legend in several sports, uh, um, including field hockey and basketball and lacrosse at, uh, at St. Paul's. She didn't start playing squash compared until her freshman year at Trinity College. And by her sophomore year, after just her second year of playing, she had gotten to the finals of the uh, college individual championship. Uh, she lost there to Gail Ramsey, but she she clearly had a tremendous squash future ahead of her. Uh, and then that spring, and this would be the spring of 77, uh, in a lacrosse game, Khaki was on a breakaway and her, the defending opponent tried to keep her from scoring, not intentionally, but it just happened this way. She tripped Khaki uh, with her stick and Khaki landed heavily on both kneecaps Oh, and uh, yeah. the knee injuries that uh, resulted uh, pretty much ended her her squash career at that you know very early stage. So she never really got to fulfill the enormous promise that she'd shown as a squash player. Uh, you know, during her first couple of years playing the sport. Uh, also, one of Pete's other daughters, Janet, the youngest, 
uh, was for many years an assistant squash pro at the Appawamas Club in Rye, New York. Uh, eventually, elbow and other arm issues forced her to stop. But uh, the only point I'm making is that um, is that Pete definitely passed his squash interest and skill and enthusiasm and knowledge on to you know his children. And for that matter, to his grandchildren as well, several of his grandchildren, uh, Jamie Boswick-Wilson, Kaki's son, won the deciding match when St. Paul's won the New England Interscholastic Championships in 2008. Uh, uh, Pete, Bos- Pete Jr.'s, Pete III's uh, daughter, Lucy, was a co-captain of the squash team at uh, St. Paul's as well, and later played at Middlebury. In fact, at Middlebury College, where, which many of them attended, uh, there is a the squash complex is the Bostwick family uh, squash courts. Uh, the family donated the money, and there was a big ceremony when they opened a few years ago. And uh, and again, there, so there's a squash legacy extending over several generations uh, that Pete Bostwick left uh, to his uh, descendants. Well, that, that's a that's an incredible squash uh, career for someone who just started at the age of 31. He passed it on to his family. He achieved uh, some great results at the national level, uh, both in singles. Uh, what about her? Did he did Pete play doubles as well? Hardball doubles. He never really. I mean, he played so many. <laughs> he played so many other racket sports that. Yeah. Um, that something had to give, so to speak. Yeah, and right. uh, and re- he did not really ever get uh, seriously involved in doubles. At one point um, in, during the early 2000s, after Pete had had those revision operations, there was a father-son uh, doubles event, a national doubles event that was set up in New York for several years. And he and his son Pete played with them, played those a couple of times, but really by then his mobility was really gone. And he right. doubles, he never really got involved in doubles. Uh, didn't get involved too much in softball squash either, although he did play in the Quentin Hyder tournament, which was the only softball event during the 70s and 80s. Uh, a couple of times he did fairly well in that as well. But but doubles, mm-hmm. he he played plenty of doubles tennis later on, yeah. especially yeah. with his children and grandchildren, but he never really got very involved in double squash. Well, I do uh, I do want to talk about the, the uh, other sports that he played, but in particular, it seems to me that he was... Uh, at a very, very high level, probably out of all the sports that he's played uh, in tennis, I guess, and just in terms of, you know, the popularity of tennis, right? Uh, the, the, how popular it is, uh, tennis and, and golf. Uh, he, uh, from the video that you sent me, which is amazing, uh, he qualified for the U.S. Open tennis and the U.S. Open golf, which is absolutely I- incredible. Uh, I, mean, you know, I mean, considering the depth of those two sports and the number of other sports that, that Pete had played. So if you don't mind, uh, speak, speak to that for uh, a little bit, uh, Rob, is, uh, you know, the, that U.S. Open tennis and U.S. Open golf, he qualified for both of those, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and those events weren't that many months apart either, incidentally. I mean, it's not like, you know, a fall sport and a, and a spring sport. Uh, he played he played both. As you said, he qualified uh, uh, into both. Uh, I mean, he's played golf with Jack Nicklaus. He's played, he's played tennis with great players there as well. I think he's one of only three people who, in fact, uh, qualified to play in the U.S. Open in both of those two sports. And, uh, and that's quite remarkable. Uh, and he played, he, tennis was the, Racket sport, he played the longest uh, because even after he was unable to keep playing squash because of the hip, uh, you know, revisions, um, he played 
uh, father-son doubles tennis uh, tournaments with his son. He played lots of uh, father-daughter tournaments. He and his grandson, Jamie Bosch, who played in some grandfather-grandson tennis tournaments, uh, right? Really, I think the last of them was fairly recent. So um, he continued to play tennis competitively. He told me more than once that nothing gave him greater joy than playing doubles tennis with uh, his children or grandchildren. Uh, I I noticed that in the video. I mean, you could see uh, how much he how much pride he took in playing with other members of his family. And I think just seeing his other uh, family members uh, uh, playing these sports and excelling uh, in these sports uh, as well. He actually played, he actually played with his, he played with each of his three daughters and played with Kaki until her knees had given out. Then he played with uh, Lily and he did very well with Lily, the the middle daughter until she had, she got injured, and then with Janet, I, he sort of, to some extent, he wore his daughters out. He they, he kept playing. And they had to stop playing because because of the injuries. Uh, so that that was uh, that was pretty amazing. By the way, he also um, his he, he there were plenty of very good Boswicks prior to him. His father, for mm-hmm. example, was a very very prominent uh, and very successful po- polo player, yeah. and. In fact, his father, in, in his, when he was in his early 70s, actually had a fatal heart attack during a polo game while he was on the field uh, riding his horse. And incredible as this may sound, and this even sounds apocryphal, but I gather it's true, he never even fell off the horse, even after dying on the horse. Wow. Well, that's incredible. Wow. Well, uh, well, Rob, that was a, a, an amazing tribute. I uh, wish we had, uh, I mean, we could, we could, speak for a couple of podcasts on Pete's uh, accomplishments in, in all his sports. But uh, once again, uh, condolences uh, to his family and uh, what a great uh, athletic career, what a great life he had. And uh, he uh, produced a, a wonderful family and some great squash and tennis and golf over the years. Right. And, yeah. and, and there's more as well, incidentally. Um, he was, uh, he, his sportsmanship level was, cons- mm. was absolutely superb. He was, he won sportsmanship awards in a number of those sports, including squash. Uh, he was, you know, he was really, he handled winning and losing with the same equanimity. He, uh, opponents always respected him. He never tried to sort of bend rules because of his prominence as a player. He was, his sportsmanship level was absolutely impeccable. Uh, so that, I think that that deserves to be that has to be known as spaded as well. Also, as it happens, his wife Lily, to whom he was married for I think over sixty years, uh, she actually passed away less than a week before he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm not even sure by that time if he was aware that his wife had, had died or not during his last couple of days. Um, they may have kept the news from him just to protect him a bit. Uh, but last week. On September 7th, uh, there was a celebration of both of their lives, of Lily and Pete's life, uh, at the uh, at the Piping Rock Club in Locust Valley, Long Island, where he was a member since 1957. Uh, and I was I was the, I was one of the attendees. Uh, there were so many people and so many more. There were over 400 people there, which mm-hmm. was which I don't think they expected, and which the club. <laughs> At least the room that the main room was not uh, was not large enough to accommodate. Uh, we were most many of us, including myself, 
we're not even able to make it into the main room. We were we had to sort of be in the adjoining room and try to listen from there. There, there was an enormous turnout uh, of people from all Pete's varied walks of life who were there to honor him. And it was at that uh, event that the video that you saw uh, uh, was played uh, sort of as a, a tribute to his life. And it was uh, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary tur- turnout and extraordinary tribute, well-deserved to, uh, to a great athlete and a great sportsman. Uh, well, thank you so much for that, uh, Rob. And, um... Also, we we also had uh, we well U.S. squash lost another legend uh, earlier. Uh, I'm not sure ex- of the exact date that he passed, but Sam Howe, uh, one of the one of the all-time greats uh, of U.S. squash, along with his brother, actually, uh, I think they they dominated uh, U.S. squash throughout the '60s and on into the early '70s. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, Rob, could you uh, give us a, some a bit of a tribute as well to uh, to Sam? Absolutely. Sam Howe uh, was, uh, he also was, uh, was, uh, was very versatile in terms of racket sports. He didn't play hockey or golf the way Pete did, but he, Sam Howe, who died just yesterday morning uh, on the morning of the 15th uh, uh, after, a, after a brief illness uh, at age 84, he and his younger brother, Ralph, are the not only were great squash players, they're the only two people, not the only two brothers, but the only two people to have been inducted into both the U.S. Squash Hall of Fame and the U.S. Court Tennis Hall of Fame. Uh, and both of them were, were exceptional tennis players. Both of them played at Forest Hills at the U.S. Nationals during the 60s. Both of them played at Wimbledon. Both of whom played on uh, Yale, uh, on their both squash and tennis teams at Yale. They were the number one squash players in each case. They were prominent tennis players. Uh, Sam Howe's, among Sam Howe's teammates on, on Yale's Ivy League championship tennis teams in the late 50s were two people who later became Hall of Famers in tennis, Donald Dell and Gene Scott. And Gene Scott actually was uh, was, Ralph, was Sam's doubles partner in tennis. So uh, he, had a, he had a great career. Both of them had great careers. First at Haverford School in, in, uh, in suburban Philadelphia, where they went to high school. And then at Yale, uh, Sam was the number one player his whole career. Uh, he played number one on the Yale team that won the U.S. squash, not the college, but the men's, the U.S. squash five-man team championships in 1959, his junior year, uh, and um, and was a finalist in the uh, in the college individuals in both his junior and senior years. But during the 60s, uh, Sam and Ralph really dominated amateur and open squash uh, in the United States. From in 61 and 62, Ralph won the college championship. In 62, also Sam won the first of his two U.S. national championships. Uh, They both, every year from 62 through 71, other than one year, 67, 68, uh, one of the Howe brothers won either the U.S. national singles or the U.S. national doubles, or both. And after several years of playing against each other in the finals of the national doubles, they teamed up in 1969, and both in in 69 and 70 and 71, three years in a row, they won the U.S. national doubles. So um, Ralph and Sam are sort of viewed as a 
few to sort of together. They were actually inducted into the U.S. Squash Hall of Fame on the same night in 2002. And they were inducted into the U.S. Court Tennis Hall of Fame on the same night uh, in December of 2021. And Sam was known, Ralph was a, a superb athlete. Sam was more known for his classic strokes, uh, his deadly short game, and his very, very calm demeanor. Nothing phased him or rattled him. Oh, and in, in addition to winning those two U.S. national championships in squash, he was a finalist three other times. Ralph won the U.S. nationals once. In 1967, they played against each other in the North American Open, which was open to, to pros as well. That event had been won by members of the Kahn family for about the last eight or nine years before that. And both of them lost, both the, the Kahn's, all the Kahn's were eliminated prior to the final. And Ralph and Sam played each other in the final. Ralph won in a very close five games. Uh, at the bank at the banquet Saturday night after the semis, uh, the draw sheet was uh, was unfurled for everybody to see, and all the names were filled in. And in the spot for the winner, the name Howe was already written in because either Ralph or Sam was going to win that tournament. And it's <laughs> kind of unusual, kind of unusual to fill in the name of uh, yeah. the, the last yeah, name all, of the winner. All they needed the to do was fill in the uh, the first name. So, um, and by the way, in that 66-67 season, which was Sam's best year, he did lose to Ralph, as I said, in the final of the North American Open. But he won the Canadian singles and doubles with Bill Danforth and the U.S. singles and doubles with also with Danforth. He is the only player to win in the same season the Canadian singles and doubles and the U.S. singles and doubles. And that that, feed, that's referred to the Grand Slam of, uh, of hardball, right? I'm sorry? Uh, that's referred to as the Grand Slam of squash. Uh, that's right. That feed has been dubbed the Grand Slam, and nobody's ever done it before, and nobody's ever done it since. So um, Sam uh, also, as did Ralph, obviously uh, achieved great – great things in court tennis as well. In Sam's case, what's really remarkable is from the early 70s until pretty much the end of the 80s, more than 15 years, uh, his his uh, inflamed hip uh, prevented him from playing those sports competitively or even recreationally. Back then, uh, hip replacement operations, uh, which, were, which had become incredibly good, but back then they were just starting. They were very crude. They kind of consisted of cementing the joints and holding, uh, hoping that cement would hold. It was it was really, you know, caveman stuff, uh, almost mm. like a carpenter would try to do. And um, and and Sam, quite understandably, did not want to subject himself to a procedure that had such a such a small track record and such so little record of success. So it wasn't until the late 80s that he actually had that operation, and that kept him out of action for a long time. And yet still, by the early 90s, he was winning age group uh, squash doubles championships, and he and Ralph continued to win uh, various open and national and age group court tennis championships until uh, really until about 15 years ago. So for, yeah. Sam to, for Sam to have had that competitive comeback after a gap that long at that stage of his life is really a, a remarkable achievement. I'm just wondering, Rob, uh, and maybe I'm off the mark here, but the Howe Cup. Different family. It's a, it's a family? great okay. question. And the Howe Cup 
you know, it is the same name with the same spelling. That's yeah. that's actually a women's tournament, um, but it was established by a family that's completely different from the from the Ralph Howe family. The Ralph okay, Sam. Uh, I mean, being you know, I always used to read all the squash magazines when I was a kid, and uh, you know, you'd always hear about the Howe Cup, and uh, that's a lot of prestige uh, uh, there in, in America for that uh, that trophy. Uh, you're talking about the Howe Cup trophy. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's uh, that's the, the, there's a women there's a how cup for adult women as a team tournament, and the and the women's college team championship uh, is, is is that tournament at the end of the season, which Harvard, by the way, has won every year from 2015 to the present. Yeah. Um, is uh, coached by Mike Way, the, the great Canadian coach who also coaches Ali Farag, the number one player in the world. Um, that that's that's known as the how cup. Uh, but again, it's a totally different family from, yeah, uh, from the Howe family, from the Sam Ralph Howe family. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought it might be uh, of the same, uh, give, give, you know, given the pedigree of uh, Sam and Ralph, I thought somehow that might be, there might be a connection there, but uh, I was wrong. <laughs> uh, it's a logical, it's certainly a logical, understandable thing to think, but, but no, it's yeah. not the case. Well, uh, you know, again, I just want to uh, send my condolences out to the Howe family, uh, they, you know, the Sam and Ralph uh, obviously, Sam, Sam just passed away. Uh, condolences to the family, and also again uh, to you, uh, Rob, who uh, you you knew him uh, pretty well. So, um, yeah. I actually got to know. I knew Sam and Ralph a bit, but I've really had the honor of getting to know both of them much, much better over the last eight or nine months. Uh, during which. I've actually been writing a racket sports biography of the of of those of the two brothers uh, yeah. called Brothers and Champions, Ralph and Sam Howe, uh, stories from the golden age of racket sports. And that book's coming out next month. And uh, when we heard how sick Sam was getting, uh, we actually tried to overnight a copy to him uh, on Tuesday eve on on Wednesday evening, uh, which arrived at his house yesterday. But by then he had passed, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, we he was. Um, it, it, I, I I really feel fortunate that I got to know Sam as well as I did uh, during these last eight or nine months. I've just I never thought it would be the last eight or nine months of his life. And um, he was an enormous contributor to the book. I was interviewing him three or four times a day, probably almost every day for several months, and he was always patient. And that's another thing about Sam. He. Um, is is a like Pete Bostrick. Sam is a beloved figure throughout the rackets world. He was president of the Racket Club of Philadelphia for years. He, of which he was a member of for fifty seven years. He uh, he was a um, a board member of the Court Tennis Association. Um, he's really he he was completely, and this is true of Pete as well. Both were completely lacking in arrogance. They were humble. They were low key. They were measured. Uh, they, you know, in spite of their tremendous records in their various sports, you, you know, you, they never uh, evinced any cockiness or arrogance or anything. They were low key and humble, and um, and really a pleasure to be around. Both known for their sportsmanship. So it's really tragic that they both passed away during the last couple of months. Uh, but there's a lot that they shared with they shared uh, many qualities that they both held and um, and they were good friends as well and um, and really uh, a tribute to both of them and, and a huge loss 
to the squash world and the racket sports world and the world as a whole that uh, that they're both gone now. Well, Rob, uh, really, really appreciate your time and sharing all of this with us uh, today. And uh, I look forward to, um, to having you back on again soon. Um, we can talk about uh, some other squash-related uh, things, uh, college squash and the hardball scene. But I really appreciate you coming on today and uh, talking about uh, the lives of Pete Bostwick and Sam Howe. Well, uh, it's really been, uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I really cherish the times I was on, Pete and I played a lot of squash together. Sam didn't because he would sort of move to other sports by the time I got serious about squash. But um, I really cherish that the friendship I had with them and the times I got to spend with them and and, uh, the feeling that the knowledge that they became my friends and I became their friends. And um, it was sort of a cathartic experience in some ways, writing their obituaries, but a painful one as well. So especially in view of how recent Sam's passing was, you know, less than 40 hours ago now, uh, mm-hmm. I really appreciate your uh, having me on and giving me a chance to speak about these two really wonderful people. Um, and the obituaries, that the, the tributes that you've written, those are both on the uh, Daily Squash Report, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, those were the fourth and fifth uh, squash-related obituaries I've written in the past eight or nine months. Uh, Rick Woolworth, who was a very good squash player and golfer, uh, died in late December. Um, uh, Ed Harding, who was a, a national age group squash champion, uh, passed away a few months later. And of course, Chris Stevens, the great Princeton player in the early, for, from class of 90, um, passed away this past summer as well. And now Pete and now Sam. So I'm really hoping I don't have to write any more anytime soon. Yeah, well, uh, I, I knew Chris uh, a fair bit and uh, played junior squash against him. And uh, anyways, yeah, uh, not a not a great uh, time for, for that, uh, for the loss of uh, so many uh, uh, greats of the game. But uh, really appreciate, again, uh, you coming on, Rob, and we'll have you back very soon, I hope. Look forward to it a great deal. Thanks for having me today. Thank you, sir. Okay, be well. Bye-bye. Well, thank you to, uh, to Rob for that uh, fantastic uh, tribute to both Sam Howe and Pete Bostwick. And uh, from the In Squash podcast, uh, my condolences go out to both of their families and friends. Uh, incredible uh, men, incredible journeys on the squash scene. And they most certainly will be missed, but they definitely left uh, a tremendous uh, amount of great squash stories there to be told uh, for years to come. So again, my condolences go out to the Bostwick and Howe uh, families. Many thanks to Rob Dinnerman for those tremendous uh, tributes today on the podcast. Now, coming up uh, on the podcast, we, we've got some great episodes uh, upcoming, so stay tuned for those. I want to wish everybody a great day and uh, all the best to you and your families. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye now. <laughs>